the stark reality is that unless there are increased incentives to find oil and natural gas, Canadians won't be debating price in the 1980s because we'll be paying the price demanded by foreign nations. For Canadians to be assured of an adequate energy supply and to be free from the fear of energy shortage, arbitrarily imposed by foreign governments, higher prices are necessary. Good morning, Wild Rose Country. Is it really good morning, though? I thought it was like... Well, this is being released in the morning, so... Oh, fair yeah, enough. Yeah, 10, 10 a.m. Was that like your take on the Good good Morning Vietnam? No, it was my take on uh, this stupid radio program that was on during the 80s. They would be like, uh, welcome Wild Rose Country. Fair enough. Or um, call in. Anyway, <laughs> I'll post something on the, on the page so that you'll know what we're talking about. But anyway, hello. Hi. Today, we're actually going to be talking about not just something in Canada, but something in... Very Alberta. regional, yeah. Very regional. We're taking on some really regional stuff today, guys. Yeah, and that's either a good thing or a bad thing. I guess, like, should we give some context? I imagine we'll give some context. We'll give some context. Cool. Today, we're doing the greatest premiere Alberta has ever had. Arguably. We have arguably. to say arguably. You can fight us in the comments. I'm going to say they were, because... As you'll find out later, he was voted actually the greatest premier Canada ever had. Suck it, Bradwall. <laughs> Peter Lougheed, born and bred here in Canada, or here in Calgary, I should say, and went on to do great things. But unfortunately, people only remember him for his fight with the NEP because unfortunately that took up a lot of his premiership. Yeah, he did spend a lot of time fighting the federal government, which is also why he's a folk hero. Yeah, it's true. Also, if I sound awful today, it's because I have a nasty cold. But I'm still doing this anyway because I love you guys. It's true. It's true. I'm so dedicated to the cause. <laughs> so what what is a premier? So a premier is the head of state, essentially, for every province in Canada. So in the United States, they have states, we have provinces, and every province has its own government. So it's led by the premier, and they have a cabinet and so there's like three levels of government in Canada. There's the federal government, the provincial government, and then municipal governments, which are cities. So we're talking about Peter Lougheed, and he was a premier of Alberta, which is the best prairie province. Sorry, Saskatchewan. <laughs> in Canada. But arguably one of the most like economically important provinces in Canada. We're the best in the West. Best in the West. Yeah. I, I heard that stupid term from something. We're east of the Rockies and west of the rest. <laughs> anyway uh, <laughs> so for that fun context <laughs> yeah i would just like one thing i would say is would the premier be head of state or head of government well it's yeah kind of government which is in most places the head of state <laughs> I get, okay fair enough. um <laughs> we live in a weird society so. we do <laughs> so peter lougheed he was born edgar peter lougheed which was something i just found out in calgary alberta on july 26 1928 he was born right before the Great Depression, like not that long before. So he, he, his childhood was within the Great Depression. And of course, the Great Depression hit the prairies pretty hard because Alberta's economy, especially around that time, was largely agriculture. 
the oil boom hadn't exactly happened yet. It hadn't really happened in a lot of places, honestly, at that point. They, they had found oil in Alberta, but it wasn't a booming Which business. also, for those of you who don't know, Alberta mostly relies on oil now. Yeah, exactly. So he moved around. Because of him growing up in the Great Depression, he actually moved around a lot around Alberta just because his father would be taking up different jobs. His father was a lawyer, and interestingly enough, his grandfather was a senator for the Canadian Senate. Um, also, if anyone's curious just more about like the context of what Great Depression Alberta might look like, um, it's not exactly on Alberta, but Ken Burns did a um, documentary for PBS called The Dust Bowl, and that focused mostly on like Oklahoma and Texas, but it's really applicable to what happened in Alberta because a very similar situation happened in terms of like drought and farming practices and what led to like the the largest like agricultural crisis kind yeah. of so anyways it, it didn't, it could, they couldn't the bad stuff couldn't just stop with the the market crashing it also had to be a really shitty farming season mm-hmm. a couple of really <laughs> shitty farming really, seasons yeah it was pretty bad it was some of the hottest seasons they had up until that point and it just really destroyed a lot of the farms and a lot of these farmers had to leave and it did hit Alberta Saskatchewan Manitoba Parts of Ontario, parts of BC, it hit it really hard because of the agriculture. It hits, it hit the prairie provinces and like therefore the plains of the United States because ultimately geography, it, ge- geographically, it's exactly the same. We just call it two different things. Yeah, but uh, it hit those areas the hardest in terms of just like climate destruction. I guess it yeah. it really tore up everything. <laughs> well, luckily for Law, he he and his family actually they did pretty well. I mean, he be. He went to several different high schools, uh, but he ended up because he, he went, the place where he thrived was at the students was at the Central Collegiate Institute. Excuse me. He became not only the president but the founder of the students' union at the collegiate. I mean, honestly, the fact he even was able to stay in high school at that point in time is a really good sign that his family did okay. Exactly. Uh, he was also a star football player. Of course, he was. Of course, American football. By the way, it just feels like that reference needs to be made. He went to the University of Alberta. He received his Bachelor of Arts between 1950 and 51, and then received the Bachelor of Laws in 1953. What was his major in? Just out of curiosity. I'm not sure. It was business, I believe. It, uh, the place that I wasn't able to exactly find it, it just said Bachelor of Arts and then Bachelor of Laws. And then while he was at the University of Alberta, he played for the U of A Golden Bears. And was also drafted into the Edmonton Eskimos. So he oh, played for the Edmonton Eskimos in the 50s. <laughs> in 1952, he married Jean Rogers. And they were married for their like his their entire life. He later moved to Massachusetts because he got accepted into Harvard University. And there he earned a Master of Business Administration in 1954. He worked all over across the United States... But one place in particular that was very important was he worked for an oil company called Gulf Oil in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And while he was in Tulsa, he was witnessing this town that had thrived under a massive oil boom. But now suddenly the oil was drying up. And it's according to researcher Alan Tupper, he believes that him witnessing this town kind of suddenly going from this boom to this downside, he saw potential in Alberta to thrive the same way this town had once done and thought of ways that it could continue to thrive even after the boom was over. 
Well, once he completed his education at, at Harvard, he worked as a manager for the Mannix Corporation. And then after doing that for a while, he left and started up his own law firm here in Calgary. Seems super anticlimactic after all that. I know, but it's about to get good. It's like a very Canadian leader of him. It seems to be a thing that happens. Yeah. All this crazy, exciting shit and then open up a law practice in your home sound. <laughs> it, it's money, right? I guess. Yeah. Keep it Calgarian. Uh, <laughs> uh, the political climate in Alberta at this time... Since 1940, it had been under the leadership of a party called the Social Credit Party. And I've done so many classes that have tried to explain social credit, and I don't understand it. It's like a weird... I honestly think of it as a very, like, centrist movement, in a sense, because it combines, like, the... the kind of union and, like, solidarity side of labor and, um of like the far like the United Farmers of Alberta like their whole like farm forward and like collective kind of spirit with also like a very conservative traditional values type thing. I mean, in that article, the one article we read, um who off the top of my head I can't remember it's by, made some comment about how at some point and I think we'll probably talk about this how the Conservative Party and the Social Credit Party tried to join at one point and they thought about going under the banner of social conservative, which means, you know, like having very conservative social values, which I, I that actually kind of rung true to me because it made a little bit of sense. But it like in terms of the two ideas coinciding well together, it's really a strange kind of mix. It's kind of a strange bedfellow over a, a party. It is. It's a, yeah. <laughs> the Social Credit Party, they were very much what we would call today the Christian right. Yeah. Socially, anyways. I mean, in many other ways, they were, like, super economically not always that conservative, I don't think. No, I know. They weren't never yeah. all too much throughout their existence, but they are very social conservative. Yeah. I mean, the the founder of the Alberta... my I know for a fact he's the founder of the Alberta branch, but he might have been the whole branch in Canada. It was this man named William Aberhart. He was premier between 1940 until he died in 43, 44, and his nickname was Bible Bill. Yeah. He well, held a radio well, program. Well, and, and Manning, he's done, was it him or was it Manning that also had the Back to the Bible? I'm pretty sure it was also, I think it was they both They both kind of did it. Yeah, they had like a Back to the Bible yeah. Sunday radio show thing. <laughs> but but yeah, William Aberhart, every, like once a week, he would hold a weekly radio program where he's reading from the Bible. <laughs> and yeah. uh, after Bible Bill died... Uh, Ernest Manning took over the mantle and he at that time, he's still Canada or Alberta's longest serving premier. Yeah. Cause there were really no, there actually, are there any term limits on Alberta? Like how many times? Yeah. Nope. I don't think so. It's the same there, with federally, I guess. Yeah. Be prime minister. As long I mean, as you get elected. <laughs> you can argue there are term limits. It's called elections, but I mean. Well, I mean, but you can remain the leader of the party indefinitely if people keep electing you. Exactly. So Manning's been in office. He definitely, he actually turned the party away from social credit because of the oil boom. Yeah. So the reason why Manning was so popular is because of this oil boom and they're making lots of money. And he was investing money into creating this. See, also the popularity of Brad Wall. <laughs> yes. <laughs> There's got to be a lot of parallels between social credit and. The Saskatchewan party. The Saskatchewan party, but just conservatives today in general. 
And you might, my fellow Canadian, our fellow Canadians might recognize Manning. Uh, if you know the Preston. man, Preston Man, Preston Manning. That was a terrible impression. I can't do it. My grandpa. His voice is really it. weird and distinctive. It's very high. What? It's the way the way Air Force described is uh, two porcupines mating on a chalkboard. Recommend looking up Royal Canadian Air Force and Preston Manning. Just a suggestion. <laughs> it's great. Preston Manning was Ernest Manning's son. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, <laughs> wasn't Preston the one who sort of took it federally? Well, he, he took the Reform Party. Yeah, yeah. To fed, like took another stupid backwater party. Yeah, federally. absolutely. Anyway, <laughs> so that's kind of what the political scheme was. I mean, Social Credit held held like most of the seats. I mean, I think it's like even going back this far, you can definitely see. I mean, obviously, I'm assuming many of our listeners don't know much about Alberta politics, but Alberta has a reputation of being a very conservative province. And um, what we're going to talk about today is, like, pretty in line with that, because, I mean, really, the two biggest parties in competition in this era, and really even now, were conservative parties. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) It's just, this was the beginning of showing, like, how conservative parties started to really show their differences. Lougheed didn't enter politics until the 1960s. After the 1963 election, they held 60 of 63 seats. The social credits, excuse me, held 63 of, or 60 of 63 seats. It's not a monopoly at all. And the Progressive Conservative Party were not in the, in the provincial legislature. They were completely taken out. I believe it was, the opposition was the CCF NDP and uh, one liberal. <laughs> Probably the party leader. Probably. I mean, by default, I guess they technically were at that point. Yeah. And what L- Lockheed was very observant in the way things were going in his surroundings. And what he, he felt that people in, especially in places such as Calgary and Edmonton. So those growing urban centers that people were becoming fed up with the social credits because on one hand the social credits were seen as too rural which is true they have very what is it, agrarian roots agrarian. agrarian roots and much of their support was in i mean they had to their main competition for a long time was a party called the united farmers of alberta so like which is a left wing to leaning. steal to steal their members, you kind of have to be agrarian yeah. and also still have some of those values. They were they were a left. They were the United Farmers were left leaning, and social credits were kind of the right alternative, I guess. Social conservative alternative. Lougheed just also was witnessing a lot of people in these urban centers were beginning to hold much more progressive views. They were still holding economically conservative views but on social policies they were becoming more and more liberal in those aspects and he felt that a lot of people were unhappy with the way social credits were dealing with social issues but they also he also noticed that people felt the liberals and the new democrats were too much on the other on the other side it also just didn't have good leadership Definitely not. A problem with the Alberta Liberal Party is that they've always, it's just like a running joke at this point, they've always had terrible leadership. There's no one really worth voting for as the leader of that party. So. (laughs) I don't mind David Kahn right now. He's okay. But I mean, for the most part, they haven't had anyone that was really better than 
the other alternatives. Exactly. That's true. There hasn't been a lot of incentive to put your vote that way. Because of Lougheed witnessing these changes, he actually decided to enter politics and he entered the leadership race for the Progressive Conservatives in 1965. Sources differ. I found one source that said the votes being cast were not given to the public, whereas another said Lougheed received 300 of the votes and his only competitor... Duncan McKillop, who is also a Calgary lawyer, only received 30 is votes. Is it like the, sorry, for the leadership race? Yes. Yeah. I don't know how provincially it works. Because I know, like, for instance, now, federally, to vote for the leadership of that of a party, you have to be a member of that party. So it's not really given to the public unless the public are all conservative members or yeah, I members believe of the, that party. I believe it was, it's always been that way. Yeah. That's kind of how that Kind of makes sense. It does, yeah. It seems weird to let anybody vote. Well... It turns out it was a smart move for the party because he actually brought the party back into the legislature in 1967. He won six seats and he managed to form the official opposition. Which was a really big step because for the most part, at that point, most other official opposition parties really had been completely ineffectual. Like, they really didn't do anything. Well, going from no seats to forming the official opposition, that's a pretty goddamn good Yeah, well, and just in general, like, they had a lot more... More teeth than a lot of the other like official opposition parties that did exist, right? Absolutely. The social credits, they still managed to maintain a massive majority and they gained the majority of support. Well, not, no, I wouldn't say majority, but like in some groups, a majority, but in most groups, a plurality. And for people who don't know, plurality means the most, but not over 50%. Yeah, so you can have exactly 50%, but not 51%. Exactly. Because of Lougheed, they actually brought the vote down, their vote percentage down to 45%, which was big. Because yeah. these were guys winning elections with like 57, like high 50s, six, uh, low 60s percent. And as one great, as I, I believe as Alan Tupper said, uh, it was enough to shake them in their boots. <laughs> so it would. It's a huge blow. It is. I mean, people will, might look at it and be like, oh, they only won like, they only won six seats. But that's still a big move for, especially for social, against the social credit. Yeah. And the thing about Alberta politics is that Alberta politics operates in dynasties. Unfortunately, yeah. It seems to, anyway. Ernest Manning, because of the results of the election, he kind of saw the writing on the wall. And he decided to retire in 1968. And he was premier for 25 years. No one has come close to beating that record. No, even... Like, yeah, really. I, does that make... I don't know if he's the most the longest in Canada, but he is definitely I'm just definitely trying to think if that would make him the longest serving, like, like quote-unquote head of government in Canada. It might. I'm not because sure. How, yeah. I'm not sure. I didn't look at uh, the other provinces and the premiers to see how long I'm they've I'm just thinking even compared to, like, prime ministers. Yeah, I don't know. I have no idea. Prime ministers don't um, seem to last very long. <laughs> I know Mackenzie King was our longest-serving prime minister. I don't know how long he served. But he served, like, several non-consecutive terms. William Lyon Mackenzie King would have been prime minister for approximately 19 years. Oh. Because he was prime minister from 21 to 26, 26 to 30, and then 35 to 48. So that's, like, I can't math well, but that's around 19 years. So Manning might be the longest-serving head of anything in Canada. I'll have to check that out. 
Stay tuned at the end of the program and we will reveal. Must fact, <laughs> must fact check. <laughs> that's, that's what makes us unique. We fact checked as we go. We're on the fly. We, we like are. to improvise. Social credit shows a man named Harry Strom to become premier. And what's interesting about Harry Strom is he's the first native-born Albertan to be premier of Alberta. So not Aber- I'm not talking like First Nation premier. He was the first... Yeah, we've never had a First Nation premier. No, not yet. I'm hoping soon. Eventually. But he was the first person to have been born in Alberta and be premier of Alberta. That makes sense. Alberta as a province is fairly new still. I mean, it's only been a province for 60 years. Obviously not now, but at that point in history... It's not far-fetched to think that that's the first guy to become premier that was born. I'm just going to quote uh, one of my – not quote. I'm going to paraphrase one of my professors who talked about Harry Strom. He said Harry – he's met Harry. It's this, it's this man named Keith Brownsey. And he said Harry is a very modest, intelligent, kind man. He just wasn't exactly meant to be a leader. So that was his drawback. Is that he had all of this going for him, but he just wasn't meant to be a leader. Lockheed managed to lead like lead a really strong opposition, and he actually during the spring nineteen seventy session alone, his party introduced twenty one bills for an opposition party. That's not like not even that's barely heard of, especially at that time. Especially, well, even just the way that Canada's political system works. Because all of the provinces obviously follow the federal model. When you don't have a majority government, you essentially can't do anything. So for an opposition party who has like a serious like deficit or like disparity in seats, to introduce anything is brave, let alone twenty-one different different um, pieces of legislation. That's really ambitious. Yeah, exactly. Lockheed also managed to boost his seating numbers to ten. Because of a couple floor crossings, and also because in Manning's old seat, when they had the by-elections, a progressive conservative won won Manning's seat. (laughs) So just to kind of give you an idea of the way Lockheed works, he's what's called a red Tory. And what a red Tory means here in Canada, I don't think it's really used anywhere else. But here in Canada, what a red Tory means is someone who is a member of a conservative party who holds fiscally conservative ideas, but is socially liberal. And we mean like small L liberal, I guess, in that sense. Yeah, that, that's Because I mean, the way well, big L liberal in Canada is the party. Yeah. But I mean like small L liberal in terms of like personal freedoms and... But more like modern liberalism, I guess, where it's a lot less like savage. <laughs> it's also a lot less defined. I guess what we consider now to be liberalism in terms of like liberal views that's really what a red tory would be but fiscally conservative yes exactly so another word you can use is liberal conservative i guess red tories is cooler i i do prefer calling it red tory it's very like specific to this place too like to canada in general oh absolutely i don't think they even use it in the in the i know the term well, they, tory comes from the uk yeah. but i don't think they use red tory yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure. So any of our British listeners, you can... <laughs> and, yeah, and I mean, in terms of discussing with conservatives, like, conservatives in the United States are represented by the color red. So it's like, it doesn't work the same. Yeah, exactly. Oh, especially in the States, yeah. Anyway. Lockheed's big break was during the 1971 election. He did not expect he was going to win this election. He just wanted to 
have a good showing. Yeah, he wanted increase to increase the number of seats. Exactly. He wanted to he wanted to build up his opposition. Um but that doesn't mean he wasn't gonna do as best he could. He's competitive. Uh, yeah. You kind of have to be. You don't play sports and go into politics and be a lawyer without having some competitive spirit. Absolutely. His biggest strength during the selection is a lot of people having seen how he worked in the legislature, like even like hearing how he worked in the legislature, because that like the news like mm-hmm. talked about that shit all the time. And he, they're like, you know, this Lahey guy and his progressive conservatives, yeah. they're really something. I don't know why I'm doing Texan accent, but you know. They're That's really apparently something. how we talk about rural Albertans. <laughs> no, I'm ta- I was talking about urban oh. Albertans. Fair enough. <laughs> the thing I thought that was really interesting was how Lougheed in this election got compared to John F. Kennedy a lot in terms of his, like, look, he was very, like, young, pretty handsome, like JFK. He was a little bit, like, not really a playboy, but had that kind of, like, young confidence about him. And he also, like JFK, was really aware of the impact that TV would have on people. Because yeah. he prepared himself for being in front of a TV audience just like JFK did in that election against Nixon, whereas Nixon kind of discounted it, like, oh, it won't be a thing. And it turns out it was a big deal, and it was the same in this election. And Harry Strom was like, we'll spend all our money on radio because that's how most people reach us. Most people don't watch TV in the summer. Well, it turns out during an election campaign, they kind of do. <laughs> this was Yeah, this was the first election where TV was... Really had a big impact. Yeah, the first one in Alberta, at least. Yeah, yeah. Um... But you were like you were saying the way like like comparing Lahi to JFK. Yeah. It's so true because you look at them and like they a actually lot of, look a little similar. They, like, a little bit, but like they definitely didn't act similar. No, I mean to be honest, you can make the the the, the Massachusetts connection. Yeah, I mean he didn't. He's not from there. Uh, <laughs> Lahi didn't stand at the and and I don't know. He didn't stand on the boat river and say Ich bin ein. Alberta, no. but uh, <laughs> also didn't have that atrocious accent. No, he didn't. I can't do it. But anyway, uh, I, I meant like I was referring to the, oh, to the JFK's okay. accent. Uh, then, <laughs> but uh, they were both like to, things I've heard to describe Lahid is he was very handsome mm-hmm. and well dressed and kept clean. He was a dapper man, he basically, was dapper, just like JFK. And he was also very he was very well done with words. Like if you guys just heard like JFK. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> At the beginning of this podcast, you you hear Lahid speaking, that's how he sounded. He was always so good at those words like me I'm always stumbling over my yeah. goddamn words. Lahid was a good he's a good orator and that makes a difference especially on a medium like TV as well. Like it's not all about how you look but you have to actually still sound competent, right? Like um and when you also when you learn to be a lawyer you oh, part of it like I'm not saying this is a stomp on lawyers but part of it is you're learning to work the the crowd. Yeah, of course. So that he you're, definitely it's had It's persuasion that. because you're trying to convince somebody of your argument. That's how it works. That's how any style of argumentation works. Exactly. Really. Exactly. I mean, being uh, my background being in philosophy is all about like argumentation and and communication, so if, if you're going to use your strengths that you learn in your career to your advantage, and Lockheed sure as fuck did that. Sure did. And it worked because a lot of these people in the urban centers are like, hey, this Lockheed. What? He's well-spoken. Yeah. He, he knows what he's talking about. He knows what we regular people want to do, what, like, want. But also appeals to people with, like... He didn't come across as too academic, but he also didn't come across as like country bumpkin or, you know, like he didn't, he, he towed that middle line really well. He wasn't very, he wasn't super cosmopolitan, but also wasn't like, 
super rural or anything. Like he appealed to a wide range of people because everyone saw in him what they wanted to see in a sense. He definitely treated everyone as people. But like the traits you look for in a person, like if you're very urban, you look for certain things. If you're very rural, you might look for different things. Everyone saw a little piece of that in Lahid because he managed to be very populist in the positive term, not populist in the like way yeah. we generally think of populism, I guess. That makes sense. The, the, the way it's been skewed today. Well, always, but populist in the terms of like he's, he's, he's popular to, to people in general, not because of an ideology, but just because as a person he's charismatic and can convey himself well to diverse groups of people, not populist in the sense of like isolationism and weird ideas. Exactly. <laughs> And just the way Lahid, he's like, we need to start moving forward mm-hmm. with our way of thinking as a province. We need to all start working forward. And people in the in Edmonton and Calgary loved that idea. But he also didn't leave behind the rural voter either. Like, he, he wanted it to be a united effort to go forward because it benefits everybody. Yeah. So, I mean, the problem with a lot of politicians who tend to appeal widely to urban voters and not necessarily to rural voters, is that they talk about moving forward, but they only talk about moving forward in a sense that benefits urban people. Whereas, I mean, Alberta at that time, and really still, is a very rural province. So you have to be able to apply yourself widely to and convince a large group of people that we need to be. It's not, there's really not, there shouldn't be this urban-rural split necessarily. Exactly. They're all, we're all the same, we're from the same place. Yeah, we're all Albertans, so... (laughs) Yeah, because of his how charismatic and how much he how great he was in uniting people, the social credits started losing the agriculture sector, and because a lot of these people had seen they were they were like, well, the social credits have been in power for this long; they're getting burnt out, and they were. And you could totally tell just in the leadership change. I mean, you went from someone like Manning, who was charismatic in his own right and very a very good leader. To someone like Harry Strom, who was a good public servant, but not a particularly great leader. And even the people working in his campaign, right? Like, oh, well, we need to focus on, like, radio and no one watches TV in the summer. Like, little errors like that signify some people who were stuck a little bit in the past and not really thinking, moving forward in their, their own thoughts. Yeah, and the, just come, this is the point I was just, I was about to come up to, like, going off of that, is... Uh, Social credits, they were focused on rural areas and they completely ignored the fact of how much the working class urban sector, like how much the urban class, working class urban population had dramatically risen at this point. And how like values wise, they really weren't out of the realm of social credit. They just never approached them. Exactly. They're, I mean, because of the oil boom, which social credits were in power under, Mm. I mean, this first, like this, there's like three real major oil booms. The first one was when the oils were discovered, and then there was one under social credit, and then there's one that we're going to get to in a bit. But the social credits were under this big oil boom. And during this boom, lots of people moved to places like Calgary and Edmonton. And the social credits still were solely focused on the rural communities, but they weren't even seeing that they were losing touch with the rural communities as well. That's what really brought their downfall. So when election day came, it was, I believe it was the biggest voter turnout in all of Canada with 72%. And there was end results the progressive conservatives garnered 46.4% of the vote, 49 seats. 
Social Credits got 41.1%, 25 seats. NDP got 11.4% of the vote and one seat, who was won by one Grant Notley, who was at that time leader of the NDP in Alberta and is... His daughter is now the, oh, well, first and only NDP Premier of Alberta. Rachel Notley. Honorable Rachel Notley. Exactly. I would say honorable, but that's neither here nor there. That's actually your official title, so. I know. (laughs) But I actually agree with the title. Yeah, I do too, but. Uh, People in our our Alberta are going to go crazy when this comes out. (laughs) I guess for the record, like, we're not actually, neither neither of us actually vote for the, have, well, I have in the past. Nope, that's a lie. Provincially, I have not in the past voted for the party of Peter Lougheed. <laughs> I have, but I voted I voted for PCs because, A, I didn't want the Wild Rose to win, and B, I didn't mind Jonathan Dennis. Yeah. He was my MLA at I, the time. The only reason I technically haven't is because I actually was living out of province and got screwed over by a special ballot issue. Like, uh, I just wasn't able to vote in that election, but it would have been, the yeah, that election when Daniel Smith was running for the Wild Rose, and I didn't want that. No, I don't want the world worlds anyway, so, but, <coughs> I mean, that... Fun times, are not even a real party anymore. <laughs> so, the Liberals, they got only 1.01% of the vote and no seats. I think this is the first time since Alberta was a province that there were no Liberals in the, in the House. They were not just like, one. oh, shit. Yeah, none. It was a low point for an, was an especially low point for a party with a lot of low points. Yeah. The PCs, they took... Every single seat in Edmonton and nine out of the 13 seats in Calgary, which is kind of astounding to think about it because they had a, the social credits at a big base in Calgary and uh, the, the rest of those seats were like social credits, of course. And then Grant Notley was in Peace River. Someone in the comments can correct me. I can't remember. Okay, this is a story that my professor Keith Brownsey, he told me. Keith Brownsey, he's one of the big guys at Mount Royal. He's a professor in political science. And there's actually clips of him speaking with CBC and CTV on different political events. Like They interviewed him when Pierre Trudeau died. Uh, he's met Lougheed and he interviewed Lougheed. And Lougheed told him a story that the day after the election, Lougheed and another one of the officials from the PC party... They came into the legislative building, into the offices, and they just found the place completely ransacked. Papers were shredded and stuff was just toppled over anywhere. This was a big scandal recently. I'm sure you all heard about that when the NDP won. They Mm. pushed... I think there's a bill now that they can't do that. But basically, like, every single time governments changes, like, to a new party, the old party is going to shred all of their paper to hide any dealings that they might have done. It's just something that happens happened here. Lougheed sat at the premier's desk and he opened one of the drawers and inside was a piece of paper and he gave it to the officials without even reading. He didn't read it. And he gave it to the officials and said, here, this isn't mine. This is Harry Strom's. So the official was walking down the hallway and he got he decided to read it and it was a series of uh, opinion polls that showed that the social credits are going to lose the election it was an interesting kind of a weird interesting look into how harry strom was feeling during the election i'm pretty sure they he knew he was going to lose Especially after hearing a story such as this, he just knew it was time. And I think he just kind of accepted it and let it happen and then shredded all the papers. (laughs) 
this is the this was the beginning of the longest political dynasty in all Canadian history. Forty four years of progressive conservative rule. Four years of progressive conservative. Not all of it was bad. Not all of it was good either. No. At least in particular, the last yeah. decade. <laughs> I have a quote here from David King, who was an MLA and also on the cabinet board for Lougheed. He said, quote, he had to put in his place a lot of building blocks so that Alberta could be in charge of its own decision making. We were treated like a colony of central Canada. That would end with Lougheed. That was one of Lougheed's main goals was to put Alberta back on equal ground with the rest of Canada. But another thing that he did, and this is why I consider him, in my opinion, to be the greatest premier, Lougheed also set out to improve Alberta's human rights record. Which up until that point, honestly, had not really been that good. It was pretty shit. Yeah. Eugenics were a thing. Yeah, I'm gonna about to get to that. The first bill that the Lougheed government actually passed was the Alberta Bill of Rights. This is verbatim what it says in the Bill of Rights. It has several clauses. First... Right of the individual to liberty, security of the person, and enjoyment of property, and the right not to be deprived thereof, except by due process of law. Both positive and negative rights. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It kind of balances itself out, but... Well, I mean negative rights in the sense that you have the right to not be disturbed. Exactly. That's what I mean by negative rights when I say that. Except by due process of law. Which, Which I think is fair. Fair enough. Yeah. That's pretty much how the rule of law works. That's how it should work in all cases, right? Yeah. The right of the individual to equality before the law and the protection of the law. Notice how there's a lot of... A lot Does that of... include protection from the law to some extent? Pardon? Does that include protection like from the law? or? Just... Oh, yeah. The protection of the law. I believe so, yes. Yeah. Notice that there's a lot of use of the word, like, liberty. There's, so far, use of the word liberty and individual. That's a very conservative thing. And, like, con- classical liberalism. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Which is a conservative value. It's so confusing. <laughs> freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly and association, which basically means being a part of a, a group and uh, to protest. And finally, freedom of the press. This bill is still in place place today, yes. Which, I mean, is in line with the Canadian Constitution. Yeah, that's what, um, it's in line with the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms as well. That's what really inspired him to do this. Because he's like, well, that works on a federal level. We need to do this on a provincial level. Because the way it kind of works is like provincial law, it's not the same way in the States. Provincial law is usually civil law. And then federal law is deals with criminal law. Like whenever a criminal goes to court, it's the court of Canada. The court, or it's uh, no, no, no. Oh. It's like it's Regina oh, versus so and so, which means the, the crown, crown versus. versus. I mean, like technically, provincial laws are most somewhat, at least mostly, yeah, dictated by federal law. So, like something that's a crime in Canada is a crime in every province. Yeah, it's civil things. Yeah, as you said, like um. Uh, like, like in the states, there's federal crime, and then there's state, state crime, which includes Actually, like murder and um, stuff like that. And how you're punished in the states is a lot more variant per state, whereas in Canada, I believe, like it's a little more uni- like uniform. So like the sentences you're allowed to give. I mean, in states, certain states have the death penalty, others don't. In Canada, it's federally not a thing. Yeah, once it's therefore federal- it can't be provincially a thing. Once something is passed federally. Like that, like abolishing the death penalty, or I don't know, same sex marriage, it yeah. becomes. Legal, legal everywhere. It's well, not like the states I mean, at for all. instance, the currently 
the passing of the the Cannabis Act to legalize marijuana in Canada um, means that every single province has to make it legal. The provinces can then control how they distribute it, the legal age to buy it, all of the civil implications of that, but it federally has to be made legal before any province can do anything about it. Yeah. Also, like, languages, like Quebec, obviously, is a famous example oh, of, yeah. of, like, technically unconstitutional laws because... They haven't signed the constitution. Uh, and like, I don't mean to make that sound as like Quebec hate. It's just actually like a thing. Yeah. Um, we'll talk about the, yeah. the, uh, the fun rival, the fun, uh, the fun relationship between Alberta and Quebec. Eventually. <laughs> I'll get to that anyways. <laughs> well, the interesting thing is like Lockheed was very adamant about this bill of rights, but he also kind of had ulterior, good ulterior motives for it. And that was because he's like, oh, because like because of us passing this, we can now abolish a bunch of laws that go against this Bill of Rights. And the big one for me was the Sexual Sterilization Act, which was actually passed. People think it was passed by the social credits. It was passed by the United Farmers. Of course it was. And what the Sexual Sterilization Act, it was a eugenics program. So anyone who is determined to be mentally ill, I'm going to say this because it was read at the time, mentally retarded, and just a variety of different reasons, they were forcibly sterilized and so that they would not be able to reproduce. So these are people... Oh, indigenous people. Uh, yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. Yeah, we do not have a great record here in Canada with our indigenous people, unfortunately. And that was one of the huge downsides to this. And I mean, they had a fucking eugenics board here in Alberta that would determine what person would be sterilized or not. Actually, a funny story. Uh, my professor, Keith Brownsey, I asked, uh, he was talking about this and I asked him, like, would homosexuals file under this? And he's like, oh no, they would just throw you in jail. <laughs> Uh, the person who actually brought the bill to abolish the Sexual Sterilization Act and abolish the Eugenics Board was David King, who was MLA for Edmonton Highlands from 1971 to 1986, who is still alive today. So, Mr. King, if you're listening to this right now. Awesome. Well, yeah, well played on you. Also, thanks for listening. Yeah, really, thanks for listening. Cool. I hope you're doing well with the Green Party out in BC. He's a member of the Green Party out there now. Interesting. Yeah. It's funny how things work. Maybe he'll take over for Elizabeth May if she ends up in jail. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> and like I said, in my opinion, this is probably the most important act in provincial legislative history of Alberta. This bill, on top of like several other things that he did, is the reason why I say he's the best premier Alberta has ever yeah. had. I'll, I'll be talking about the reason, the other reason why most people, the, the popular reason for why he's the considered the most the best premium yeah which is fair but they're missing like my yeah, point is they miss a missing lot. so much more than lot. he did he did so many great things absolutely the same year which was 19 this was 1970 yeah the 1972 session <coughs> so the first session that they ever had and in the same year remember i'm just gonna remember remind you this is a conservative party the same year they established quote First income support program, end quote, for people unable to work due to disabilities. They also increased royalty payments by oil companies from 17% to 40%. In 2016, it's 16%. This helped to moderate production, to make it more stable. And it also 
It's a huge uh, influx of cash for the government. Yeah, it was that. But it also helped to stimulate companies becoming actually more competitive with one another. Yeah. So they would innovate and create better technology in yeah. order to produce and refine oil. And importantly, because of the influx of cash to the government, Lockheed established the Heritage Savings Trust Fund, which is basically a giant savings account for the province of Alberta to help use that money towards innovation and just more positive changing to like the education system and healthcare and like actually reinvest that money in the province. So he was, so, he was willing to spend and, yeah. money on social programs when it was needed. This is what we mean by being a red Tory. Exactly. I mean, he's conservative in some aspects, like fiscally, but he also understands the importance of needing like these welfare programs people people need a social safety net and i think i would argue that probably a lot of that came from him growing up in the depression when there really were no social sa- or no safety nets for people i would agree because i mean that's why people like tommy tommy douglas exist is that like the depression was really hard there were no safety nets really for people and so you have large groups of people who all of a sudden have no house no money no jobs like they're struggling to eat. Like, even though his family did okay, he would have seen that and it would have definitely had an impact on his policies as a politician. Absolutely. As a human being, really. Yeah, I mean, he was the person who was like, just because I'm so, I like, just because I'm a conservative, I'm not going to leave people, mm-hmm. uh, like, leave people, they were abandoned people. I expect that, like, the experience of a lot of people like him coming of age during the Depression would have had an impact on the conservative, on conservatives in general, because it would have really, it really, that Depression in general just challenged traditional conservative ideas about, like, how the market works, (laughs) and just how, like, how, you know, you can't leave everyone completely to their own own devices, because it's not gonna work for your society, I mean. This is a man who study to learn how this stuff works mm-hmm. and he was like i'm gonna put this again i'm gonna put this to good use yeah he started off doing a great job for alberta like he it's only this is only his first session and he gets all this check complete another thing like what i was talking about he wanted to put alberta back well not just alberta but western canada kind of back on equal terms with the east he held a conference in calgary at mount royal college now university called the Western Economic Opportunities Conference, just held in July 1973. It was a conference between the Trudeau cabinet, including Pierre Trudeau himself, the premiers of the Western Canada provinces, and other members of governments, including future premiers and a couple of the future prime ministers. I don't know which ones. They, they didn't say in the paper that I was reading this off. Uh, Robert Roach, who wrote this article, said, quote, it ushered in a new era of federal-provincial relations led to the establishment of the annual Western Premiers Conference, shaped in the perceptions and attitudes of dozens of political and bureaucratic decision makers, brackets, many of whom were still active in government circles, and brackets, and marked the rise of the New West, hungry for economic development and a reformed federation. It was also kind of where the federal government and the Western provinces kind of started butting heads. Oh, no. As soon as you start talking more, you tend to disagree more sometimes. (laughs) Open Uh, communication is good, but there's also, like, the flip side of it, too, where you just communicate negatively towards each other a lot. Definitely. Another big thing for the split is, like, after the 1972 federal elections, only 10.3% of Western MPs were liberal, Mm -hmm. so part of the liberal government. And as... The years went on, it got lower and lower. I think at one point it was like 1.9% of Western MPs. And this includes British Columbia. Mm-hmm. Well, they've always voted for more like the NDP. Yeah, we're not saying it's like all of it was entirely conservative. Conservative, no. It would be like a mix of like... Well, and also something important to note 
based on just like percentages is that, I mean, that, that percentage isn't really affected by this, but when we say um, Lougheed's mandate to some extent was to balance the power in Canada between the West and the East, what we mean is that in Canada, we have a representation by population, and in Canada, the population is very much swayed towards the East. Most of the population lives in Ontario and Quebec, which means that there's a lot more policy and a lot more money is spent in those areas for the most part. It's created a bit of... a bit. A lot of animosity between the West and the East, and so there's very much like a split between the West and the East. And I think it exists to some, to some degree in most places um, that I've, most countries I've been in, there's always like regional differences and kind of like, and a little bit of animosity and a lot of like competition. But I think that in countries like Canada and the United States, where we're just physically such large countries and the population is spread out, in particular in Canada, the population is spread out over a massive area and we don't have a big population in the first place. There's a huge disparity in areas. And so that just creates, it just exaggerates any of those animosities, I guess. So exactly. kind of important to keep in mind here. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the conference had several themes. There are objectives for the West, talk about transportation, industrial and commercial development, capital financing and financial institutions, and of course, agriculture. So the overall theme was to improve the economic development in the Western provinces with support from the federal government. It was not entirely successful. They were not able to make an agreement between the federal and provincial governments to create a new national policy that would help with this. But also the federal government, they were reluctant to focus on the concerns of the West of Western Canada. And because of the lack of, res- of results, this kind of started the, few, the fuel, the flames of Western alienation. But Lockheed came out a new person. Well, not a new person, but much a, a much stronger person. But it's funny because even the other premier, like the other premiers in the province, and like Saskatchewan and BC and Manitoba, started like they're kind of looking at this guy. They're all conservative politicians, but different kind of conservative. In fact, he the oil company started calling Lougheed the blue eyed cheek, <laughs> and I believe it was the. It was either Premier Saskatchewan or the Premier of BC at the time. I uh, started calling him Peter the Red. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of the greatest things that actually happened to Alberta, but was quite devastating elsewhere, was the 1973 oil crisis. This was the beginning of the next oil boom. Yeah, and also like a huge phase in Alberta's, in Lougheed's legacy, actually. This was, this was cementing it further. In short, I'm going to go with this really quickly. In short, the 73 oil crisis was because the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, known as OPEC, were made up of Venezuela, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Iran, and Kuwait, and later joined by Libya, Indonesia, and Qatar. They just kind of basically controlled the oil production around the world because those are the people that are, at the time, they were the biggest oil producers and exporters. They still mostly are. They still mostly are, except a couple... Yeah, so they're just regulating the way it was. Well, if you notice, a lot of those countries were Arab states. In 1973, Syria and Egypt decided to launch a surprise attack on Israel with the support of other Arab nations. This was the Yom Kippur War. So in response to this and the fact that the Soviet Union was supplying Egypt and Syria, President Nixon authorized what's called Operation Nickel Grass to supply Israel with weapons and other supplies to aid in their defense. And because of this, OPEC retaliated with an oil embargo on Canada, the United States, the United Kingdom, Japan, and the Netherlands, who were all, they were all supporting Israel. 
And this lasted from October 1973 until March 1974. What this did is it actually quadrupled oil prices in 1974. So up to $12 US per barrel. Because of this, Alberta actually kind of started to really soar because because of how expensive oil was. Big oil producer, high prices. Exactly. <laughs> they were able to, they were like, oh my God, like this, this could actually benefit this. So, well, the federal government created an export tax on oil and that means that they took over $300 million for themselves from the oil industry, which again, further brought the Western provinces, especially Alberta and the federal government to a head. But the boom in oil prices and it created countless multimillionaires throughout Alberta because all of a sudden, holy shit, we have a bunch of fucking money now. And in turn, this, they're also like, <coughs> because there must be more of this somewhere out there. So the oil exploration really started to take off again. So it changed, it changed uh, Alberta being looked at the the Canadian Bible Belt and mostly agriculture. Yes, and into a very wealthy province based on the oil industry. So Alberta's population increased by a third during the 1970s, in most part due to the oil industry and the creation of new jobs. Infrastructure improved because they needed to get people here and there. Like, that's when the buildings started Which downtown. is also where, like, a new base of power for Lockheed came was all of these new people in Alberta, essentially, like, in the early 70s, like, who became part of the oil boom. Yeah, and, I mean, you got to remember, he had... Uh, he had the royalties at such a high rate, so the Alberta government was making Breaking a in. shit ton of money, and they weren't wasting it. One of the things Lockheed did it was he he and his parties established the Alberta Energy Company, and what this did was that it was the first time Alberta residents were allowed to make direct investments into the oil industry. Mm-hmm. So people got rich because of this. Mm-hmm. He also helped establish the petrochemical industry here in Alberta. Which is important because that's oil refining. Yes. Is uh, largely like one of the biggest issues Canada faces is like not being able to refine most of the oil that we produce. Exactly. And th- th- that's, that's interesting because like, like what, what his legislation required, it required natural gas companies and oil companies to produce and keep feedstock within Alberta. And to quote him, the man directly, it was allowing for jobs to remain in Alberta, quote, and not ship them down the pipeline, end quote. <laughs> Just brief, briefly some other accomplishments, and then we're going to get on to the good stuff. He saw the PCs re- re-elected with 69 out of 75 seats in the following election. 75. 75. Now, this, it, it was so bad that the so creds were diminished to four seats. And NDP's Grant Notley kept his seat. He's a very popular he guy. He was a very popular guy. And actually generally wide respected by politicians of all stripes in Alberta. He's never been a politician that anybody has talked to, talked down about. Like, not uh, His daughter definitely uh, was boosted a little bit by people's memory of, of Grant Notley. Not to say she's not competent on her own, but that definitely benefited her. She's a different kind of person than he was, is what I'm hearing. Like, they're both equally as... Yeah, yeah. But she definitely, like, the institutional memory of a lot of people about Grant Nolly, like, gave some goodwill to more... They were more inclined to 
consider what she had to say, which is a huge step forward in Alberta if you're an NDP or even be <laughs> to even be considered as like Well to go from four seats to the government. Yeah. Obviously a lot of that was on her, but her father's legacy as a, a politician definitely helped. In 1976, the party established the Alberta Heritage Savings Trust Fund, which I believe you mentioned. So what that did, did you, you did explain it. Yeah, so it just basically used oil revenue to reinvest in healthcare and education, and it was just generally a giant savings fund. Yeah, 30% of the oil royalties went to this. The fund at one point was like billions of dollars. Yeah, at this time, like the first transfer into the fund, it was $1.5 billion. Wasn't, isn't it all gone now? It's not all gone, it's but it's not gone. anywhere near... What it used to it's be. It's like still like $14 billion or something, but yeah. at one point... Oh, that point, was in Saskatchewan that Bradwell squandered pretty okay. much all their money. Well, here it's it's still around, <laughs> but it's like $14 billion, but at one point it was like $50 billion. Yeah. It was something ridiculous. He also, there's, this is a great story. I love this story. A couple people, I can't remember the names, should have written it down. They organized a helicopter tour for Lahid near Canmore. And as he was flying around this, he was just so taken. This is like, not really sure if it's true, but it's a a famous story. story. It's a great story. So Lahid was so amazed by how beautiful the area he was seeing was. He went back to the legislature and established what was called Kananaskis Provincial Park. Keep that name in mind. It's going to become important later, but I'm going to save it for later. In 1978, he ensured that the Syncrude Canada project in the oil sands was completed by providing them with provincial funds and support. And he helped establish the Alberta Oil Sands Technology and Research Authority with its goal to progress the creation of technology made for non-conventional oil production. In 1979, he won the third election with 75 out of 79 seats. Which I believe is the biggest majority ever. I believe in Alberta, at least. Yeah. There's, uh, I want to probably say mostly. No, there's a couple provinces where a party has won every single seat. Okay. New Brunswick and PEI. Yeah. So, and then in 1980, he passed a $300 million endowment to form the Alberta Heritage Foundation for Medical Research, mm-hmm. which was all medical research, like mental health research or cancer research <laughs> or anything. But then the clouds began to form and the storm could not be avoided yeah. for much longer. So basically, Peter Lougheed, while, while doing all of the things we've talked about so far, spent most of his tenure as premier fighting with the federal government. <laughs> um, I guess Jonah mentioned like the background of world oil, su- oil supplies were starting to tighten. And the prices were skyrocketing due to turmoil in the Middle East. And also at the same time, the United States was experiencing like really big production declines because they used to be one of the largest producers of oil and then became one of the largest importers of oil in that time period, which obviously limited available supply because the United States is a huge engine to be fueling. And obviously Canada also has its own oil (laughs) to produce, most of which comes from Alberta. And the bulk of that production was exported to the U.S. or shipped to industries in Canada, mostly in Ontario and Quebec. This is all kind of the background leading up to this major energy policy, which the federal government passed. I'm just giving some... Can I I quickly add something? Yep. In 1980, oil was $38 a barrel, and that was up 1,200% since 1970. And so there was this belief that it would reach $80 or $90 by the end of the decade. I think that's kind of important. Yeah. 
yeah. I think. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, no, it is it is actually really important to this the program that gets yeah. launched as a result. You'll, so, you'll see what I why. Yeah, so basically amid all of these fears about future oil supplies and rising prices, the federal and Alberta governments both they they started to become like locked in this like stalemate negotiation over what price should be charged for Alberta oil to Canadian consumers. Because obviously, I mean Ontario is famous for, for the auto like manufacturing and auto industries, and so oil and just energy in general is important. And also has the largest population in Canada, so they're paying a lot for gas. And this was a concern to politicians because the majority of people live in the West, live in the East. So the debate was over whether or not people in Canada should be charged a lower price to benefit Canadian consumers, or if they should be charged what the world price was, which, as Jonah mentioned, was really high. And in 1980, Pierre Elliott Trudeau was re-elected. This just became started the second chapter in his tenure as prime minister. He was not prime minister for a number of years. Yeah, Joe Clark. Kind of briefly took it over for. <laughs> I think my dad actually said it was only six, six months. It wasn't very long. It was not very long. He lost. Well, he, no, Trudeau was out of politics for a little longer than that, was he not? I don't know, but I, all we're I know is that we're going to talk about Trudeau. Is that it was? It went from Trudeau <laughs> to Joe Clark for a few months, and then back to Trudeau. I'm pretty sure that's that. how it worked. Well, we're going to talk about Trudeau a lot more later, but basically, he's like a very contentious pr- prime minister because he did a lot of really great things for Canada that people in Alberta will definitely try and argue against, even though their position is really weak. But he also <laughs> he also definitely um, did some really contentious things, as I'm about to talk about. <laughs> so in the 80s, in 1980, the Liberals got a majority government, which means they can pass legislation with a lot more ease. And on the 28th of October in that first year, uh, which is their first budget, the Trudeau regime introduced the National Energy Program, also known as the NEP, which is probably how I'm going to refer to it, because I'm lazy. Uh, which this program, the NEP, was one of the most ambitious unilateral attempts by ever made by the federal government of Canada to intervene in the economy of any kind. So the objectives of the NEP, were th- there was three of them. One was to reduce Canada's dependence on foreign oil, because Canada also imported a lot of oil from OPEC, as Jonah mentioned. Two, the second, sorry, the second main objective was to encourage greater self-sufficiency in domestic supplies, so kind of related to number one. And uh, the third objective was to redistribute oil wealth via taxes and resource royalties from Alberta towards the federal government and consumers and uh, generally gain greater Canadian ownership of the oil industry because obviously, in, like most industries, there's a lot of foreign investment. So the federal government adopted a wide range of measures to ensure that to reach these goals. Importantly, it issued grants to encourage oil drilling in remote areas, so it, it tried to increase exploration in Canada, especially in the north, where Ottawa, not the provincial governments, had jurisdiction over natural resources. So therefore, they had the right to earn that revenue, which would be high. It also gave grants to convert away from oil to gas or electric heating, and it imposed a 25% federal ownership share on all oil and gas discoveries made by private companies in the north and offshore. So all of those were pretty big measures, and they were sh- aimed to shift control of Canada's oil resources away from the provinces and private industry and into the federal coffers. No one in Alberta or in the oil industry in general who wasn't part of the federal government was really not impressed, but they could live with that. What ultimately pissed everyone off the most was that the federal oil royalties and taxes were used in part to fund the energy company Petro-Canada, which at the time was a federally owned crown corporation. So those of you who are in Canada and see Petrocan gas stations everywhere, Petrocanada is now a privatized company, so it's no longer a crown corporation. It's, but It's Suncor now, I think. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the, the corporation yeah. is Suncor, but the gas, the gas station is Petrocan. Petrocan. Yeah, like SO is owned by Imperial Oil. 
But um, Crown Corporations have always been a little bit contentious in Canada. There's always a big debate about what should be public and what should be private. Petrocan was definitely no different, um, especially because money being taken from oil royalties garnered by Alberta and the oil industry in general were being used to fund a federal crown corporation. So these fees increased the federal share of government revenues collected from the oil industry and thereby shifted wealth from Alberta to the federal government. But that's not even like the most controversial thing. I think one of the most controversial measures was actually the imposition of a national oil price, which was lower than the national or the world price. Definitely lower than the world price, which I guess was what, like $38 a barrel or yeah, they just said, said. Yeah, $38 a barrel. Yeah. But Which Uh, now is like nothing, but I guess count for inflation. I couldn't find a price either. They just said they wanted to lower it. Yeah. So I'm guessing they didn't even get that far. My guess is, I think they did. I don't know. Well, yeah. As far as I'm reading, says they actually did impose that price. Okay. So I don't know what the price was, but it was imposed. And so my guess is it was probably, I'm going to, like, I'm just going to take a guess and say it was like around $25. Possibly, yeah. Um, I, I imagine it would be significantly lower. Because that would benefit Canadian industries, such as manufacturing, but also people who buy fuel. And uh, most of those people are located in central and eastern Canada, so Ontario and Quebec. Which, from an election standpoint, super important. If you want to get re-elected, you need to make people in those areas happy, because that's where the majority of the population is. So obviously this brings us back to Alberta and Peter Lougheed. Alberta being the oil-producing province, not super pumped about the NEP, but the NEP's supporters, it did have a few, said the federal government was merely trying to protect Canadian consumers from high and volatile global oil prices, which is fair enough. I mean, resources are, resource industries are always boom and bust. It's a commodity, so, but it's the same in agriculture. It's the same in every industry with a commodity. Um, And they also said that Ottawa wanted to secure national oil supplies at a time of great global economic and political uncertainty, which is also fair enough, however kind of lofty. But also, I think, to some extent, pretty much impossible with any commodity. (laughs) Uh, Generally speaking, it's pretty hard to secure that forever. Obviously, the program sparked some outcry in the West, especially in Alberta being the major oil producer. Many saw the NEP as, obviously, a blatant money grab, especially because it wasn't being used in a revenue-neutral sense or in any kind of neutral sense. It was being used to fund another oil company. Yeah. (laughs) Um... I mean, yes, it did, like, lower the price for a lot of people, but it mostly was, like, Petro-Canada was really contentious. Another thing that critics saw, which is kind of important to what Jonah just mentioned and what I'm going to mention, is that in the eyes of people against the NEP, they saw Central Canada. So, like, Central Canada and Eastern Canada, we're kind of referring to them as the same thing right now. Because we consider, in, in, in Alberta, we consider Ontario the East, when in reality it really is Central. But anyways... <laughs> The idea was that the East slash Central Canada was plundering the West for valuable economic resources without actually, like, treating us as equal citizens. So it kind of feels into that animosity of, of like, well, you, you only care about us when you're, we're filling your coffers, but not pretty much any other time. So polls show that Albertans opposed the NEP by a ratio of 5 to 1. There was a radio call-in show on the CBC, which actually, we're going to post a link on the Facebook page as well because it's really excellent. So there's this one quote where this guy said that he was so angry. If I'm stuttering right now, it's just because I'm so angry right now. Like, I believe we should, you know, fight back. Like, I'm willing to take up, like, I'd fight them with a rifle. Yeah, he, he, says, literally, he says when I say fight, I mean literally fight with, with a rifle. rifle. Like, he was willing to take up arms against the federal government. And he wasn't the only one. There was, like, definitely a push for, like, that we should physically actually fight the federal government. But can I just point out yeah. about, like, when you're going to hear in this thing, he, like, says this stuff, he's like, I'm terribly angry. Yeah. But he like even when he's saying stuff like fight with a rifle, he's saying it in such as such a Canadian way. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. 
Yeah, and actually at the time, too, bumper stickers began to appear that said, let the eastern bastards freeze in the dark, which you'll keep that in mind for another future episode because it's going to come up. But anyways, so under Peter Lougheed, Alberta responded, <laughs> obviously. Yeah. Uh, Peter Lougheed would never have stayed in power long enough if he didn't. <laughs> Can I just say a quote real quick? Yeah. A couple quotes here. First, Lougheed described the NEP as an, quote, outright attempt to take over the resources of this province, end quote. And in a, at another point, like when retaliation really started to happen, he said, quote, any unilateral action taken by the federal government, particularly one by the federal government that's been rejected by Western Canada, will be resisted by our citizens with the strongest and most determined ways, end quote. Yeah. At the same time that all this is happening, American and other foreign oil companies sold off a lot of Canadian assets, which meant that Alberta's industry, energy industry in general, was hit really hard. So what kind of coincided with the NEP, and it wasn't entirely caused by the NEP, but certainly didn't help. There was a large economic crisis at the time, which was related to energy because the price of oil in the 80s actually took a really unexpected hit and dropped. And also, at the same time, foreign companies were selling off their assets. And also, Peter Lougheed responded to the NEP initially by trying to cut Alberta oil production by delaying developments in the oil sands. And he did this to try and stop the federal government from making money on it, essentially. So between all of that, there was really heavy job losses, which spurred just general animosity in the West because, like, when people are jobless, you get angry. Much of the decline, though, to be fair, I guess, <laughs> was caused by a severe global global recession and a really large unexpected fall in global oil prices starting in, 80, in 82. The reason why the NEP failed, in large part, was because uh, it was put in place on the expectation that world oil prices would continue to climb and uh, also demand would continue to climb. They thought this would happen indefinitely because apparently no one understood boom and bust. Um, And so then obviously when they didn't, the justification for the NEP was kind of like gone. (laughs) And it began to be shown as like it was ill-conceived. But what also led to the dismantling of the NEP, because obviously... It didn't last. We don't have that anymore. So in the fall of 1981, even before these oil prices fell, Ottawa and the Alberta government signed a new agreement that changed the NEP's revenue-sharing provisions between the two levels of government and eliminated the hated federal export tax on Alberta oil. Um, The following year, because Peter Lougheed fought this in the courts, the Supreme Court of Canada ruled that the federal government could not tax provincially-owned oil and gas wells, prompting a further reduction in Ottawa's revenues from the oil industry. And that ruling is actually really important currently as well um, on any discussion of royalties being shared between provinces regarding pipelines for now, for instance. Um, The biggest fight with the pipeline between Alberta and BC is that BC wanted a share of the oil revenue because... They only garnered the economic benefit of the jobs created by building the pipeline. But Constitution, or like the Supreme Court of Canada has ruled that no one is entitled to any province's royalties on any resource except that province. They can choose to share it if they wish, but no one is entitled to it. So essentially the NEP was struck down and then the final remnants were dismantled by the next government of Canada, led by Prime Minister Brian Mulroney of the Progressive Conservative Party, uh, which I I would definitely say that Mulroney benefited. not a progressive. Well, no. But also I would say that he benefited heavily from Peter Lougheed's uh, valiant fight against the NEP because Lougheed, 
garnered a lot of national attention for this too. It's not he was he became a folk hero in Alberta, but he also garnered a ton of attention in Canada in general. And the PCs have been riding kind of a wave since Diefenbaker. So, <laughs> but yeah, the overall the NEP did reduce Canadian dependence on foreign oil and foreign ownership in the oil industry. But the negative consequence is that it fueled serious distrust of the federal government in the Western provinces. Uh, that really, really like remains today. I mean, after the NEP, the Liberal Party in Alberta pretty much ceased to like federally ceased to exist. I mean, the Alberta most a lot of the Liberal parties, not just in the West but all of Canada, ceased their yeah affiliation with the federal party. Yeah, they had to because it was toxic. Yeah, but in particular in the West, and honestly, even no matter how much they tried to disassociate, they just were never able to really recover in Alberta and federally. You know, this most recent election was the first time that there was this number of Liberal MPs in Alberta. We got two? Two in Calgary. Two in Calgary. One of those seats was the first time that the Liberal had had that seat in like 60 years or something ridiculous. Oh my god. Yeah, it definitely fed a lot of uh, feelings of resentment and alienation and fueled a lot of political movements, which is definitely going to be kind of a related episode we're going to have soon. So this 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 episode is actually kind of the start of like a little series of episodes concerning Western Canadian politics. And Alberta politics as well. So, yeah, the NEP definitely had the negative legacy of of creating serious distrust of the federal government by people in the West in particular. But in general, it was a really huge uh, instigation on the part of the prime minister and definitely probably is like the most, the chief legacy of the NEP was really just fostering this like resentment and like also this tribal fierce defense of the oil industry in Alberta. That, I mean, it really it has lasted for since then. Like, I think we're more defensive about it than we would have been had this not been a thing. Um, well, the ND, NDP <laughs> in, here in Alberta almost disassociated themselves from the federal NDP because of... Except the they would oil. have had to change the name of the party. I know, but they, but it yeah. still almost happened. Almost might still happen, depending on how the next we'll, thing goes. We'll <laughs> see. So yeah, the NDP ultimately made up like the largest portion of Lougheed's uh, tenure as premier. It was he, a long fight. He spent... At least a good five years fighting it, which is a significant amount of time. It's a yeah. whole term, really. Another, th- I, I wrote this down. He was part of the Gang of Eight. Have you heard of that? Yes. Uh, when the Canada Act happened, which was when the, the, Constitution. the Constitution was repatriated to Canada. I know. This is going to be so weird for people mm. listening in the States. We didn't have or our any fucking. Other country. <laughs> yeah, we didn't have our fucking Constitution. Yeah, so Canada, Canada is a constitutional monarchy, which meant that until 1982, our constitution was in London, England, and any amendment that was made to it had to be signed by the Queen yeah. herself, like, not but, by the representative, by her. <laughs> yeah, but in 1982, Pierre Trudeau had signed the Canada Act, which repatriated the constitution to Canada, and therefore, we actually do not need the Queen's consent to change it. We need the consent of the provinces to change it. Mm-hmm. That's how it works. I mean, if you read about what the Charlottetown Accords was, it was an attempt to change the Constitution. I'm not going to go into full detail, but it was an attempt to change the Constitution, and it needed the full consent of every province, and it did not get that consent. Nope. So, it didn't pass. So, what Lougheed, Lougheed and Gang of Eight, it was was led by Lougheed, but it was the premiers of also Quebec, Manitoba, PEI, Newfoundland, BC, and later Saskatchewan and Nova Scotia. It was just an opposition to proposed additions to the Constitution, which in theory would have granted more powers to Ontario and Quebec. So it's kind of interesting seeing that Quebec was against this. Yeah, but Quebec was against it for different reasons. Yeah, true. 
And so it was just grant Ontario and Quebec greater powers compared to the rest of Canada. Mm-hmm. And it was Lougheed himself. There's a section in the Constitution, uh, the 750 formula, it's called, under Section 41. And what this does is it prevents the creation of second-class provinces. So every single province is equal. equal. Now, what isn't equal are the territories, but that's due yeah, but, to population. Yeah, they're not actually officially, like, they don't have the same... Like, so part of the reason that the NEP was, like, kind of successful in the part of the federal government is that they have jurisdiction and they control a lot more of the north, like, the territories. Yeah. They control more... The... Um, prov- yeah, the provinces gain their power federal power through the constitution mm-hmm. the territories have their power through the federal government mm-hmm. that's how it works but that's because of a population i'm pretty sure it's a population thing because there's sure so some other things there's too, so but. well they're so vast and huge but they only have like none yeah. only has like twenty three thousand people living there yeah i'm sure some of it's probably has some colonial roots too though probably anyway so lahit helped to get the constitution to canada and also made sure that provinces were all treated on equal terms mm-hmm. The only, like, he had to make a couple of compromises, like, on, when it come, came to the Senate, he had to make compromise that the amount of seats were proportioned to population. Which actually isn't the case, though, because Newfoundland has a smaller population than BC, but has more senators than BC. I don't know how it works. It's, yeah. it's, it's dumb, but it is weird. we could go off on that for another hour. The Senate is a whole other yeah. monstrosity. <laughs> but... Yeah, because of Lougheed, we every single province now has equal consenting power. Mm-hmm. So they need the consent of every province in order for something to pass. Which it still doesn't have. No. Which Quebec is, never signed. I know, but isn't Quebec the only one that hasn't signed it? Yeah. Okay. And they're actually the current premier. This was in the news, like, in the last year. I don't remember when now. Um, is arguing that there should be a reopening of the constitution. Not to add anything necessarily, but to like discuss, right? So that they can actually officially ratify the constitution. Well, they got. We can until, talk about that later. They got though. until was, October, so it was really. It's really interesting why they want to do it. It's actually really interesting, and we can talk about that later. But okay. <laughs> it's not important to this. Yeah. After that, he like his final days in office were pretty calm, for the most part. So they won their fourth <laughs> election in 1982. With again seventy five out of seventy nine seats. If you guys have ever seen or read the Canadian Encyclopedia, it's because of Lougheed that that thing exists. It was actually founded to celebrate Alberta's seventy fifth anniversary in nineteen eighty five, and Lougheed actually secured provincial funding for its creation, and he also personally donated a copy for every single school and library in Canada. So because of him, it was in every single school and library in Canada. Think about that. I had to double check that because I was like, did I write, did I read that right? Oh, I did. But yeah, it was, he, out of his own pocket, paid that money for that, for that donation to happen. He resigned as premier on November 1st, 1985, not for any scandalous reasons or for any. He wasn't forced out. No, he wasn't forced out. He just felt it was time. Mm -hmm. He was a very modest man and he didn't. Ironically, didn't really believe in dynasties. He believed change needs to happen, and that's why he stepped down. And he was succeeded by football player Don Getty. And Lahi did not run for re-election at 86 and went into retirement. And in his later life, he it was kind of quiet, his later life. I mean, he kind of 
enjoyed his retirement. Kind of did what pretty much every Canadian politician does is sort of just like fade into obscurity. Yeah, but he definitely did this on purpose. He's no, just... but I mean, like intentionally. A lot of oh, former yeah. prime ministers, like they just reopen their like pri- private practice. They just go about their business. They don't. They don't. There's the, like a lot less fanfare than former presidents, for instance, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, like most former prime ministers, kind of just fade into obscurity. They might still be involved in politics a little bit, like in kind of private roles, but they usually wait quite a long time before they do that you know they write books and they might speak to universities and things like that but for the most part they kind of fade away <laughs> yeah and Look, and Lockheed really did that well he did he would pop up occasionally to do interviews about current events going on mm-hmm. and stuff I mean, much like, like Cretchen right now I exactly mean, he pops up to every now and then when someone asks his opinion on something but for the most part he goes about his business and yeah he was named a companion to the Order of Canada in 1986 and then named to the Alberta Order of Excellence in 1989. And just, yeah, like I said, lived a very quiet retirement with his wife. Still here in, he still lived in Calgary for the rest of his life. Kananaskis Provincial Park from earlier was renamed Peter Lougheed Provincial Park in his honor. Beautiful place if you guys ever get a chance to go out there. There is also a new hospital built in North Calgary in 1988, and it was named the Peter Lougheed Center in his honor. I believe I was born there. Really? hmm So, yeah, mostly stayed out of the public eye, except for occasional interviews. I don't know if he actually wrote any books. He didn't, he didn't like other people, like, have, I know other leaders of parties have gone on to do university stuff. He didn't do that. He just completely retired. Yeah, he didn't be on which any is fine. board of directors, which is honestly probably better. Yeah. In some ways, because it's often con- controversial when premiers end up on the board of directors for universities. There's a big thing about it in Saskatchewan right now. Mm. Well, one thing that Law, he actually kept a secret from most people in his life. He suffered a heart condition for his whole life. And after be- being premier, he developed high bl- blood pressure. Mm. He was hospitalized after his health began deteriorating in September 2012. And on September 13th, 2012, he passed away at the age of 84 of natural causes at the Peter Lougheed Center. Apt. How weird That would be would such a be? strange and surreal experience. Like, I am dying in the hospital that is named after me. This is... <laughs> he is survived by... I guess you'd feel secure in your legacy. Yeah. He is <clears throat> survived by his wife of all those years. I believe she's still alive. And he also has a son named Stephen Lougheed, who until recently was a CEO of a Alberta company. He His legacy, obviously, is still here today. And in 2012, he was named Canada's greatest premier in the last 40 years by the Institute for Research on Public Policy. Obviously, his legacy has had a huge impact, not just on Alberta, but he's Federally. Oh, in Canada, really. He helped spark, like, a big wave in popularity for the PCs. Yeah. The, I mean, the PCs lasted until 2012? 20, no, 2015. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, even federally, like, I would definitely say that Mulroney got elected in 84 because of Peter Lougheed. It's possible, yeah. But there's definitely a correlation because I think that the fight that... Lougheed garnered a lot of national attention as a result of that whole thing. Oh. And I think that the fact that he was like 
standing up for not just Alberta, but ultimately his argument was for all provinces that you should be entitled to the things that you produce. Like it wasn't just about getting, making sure Alberta got its, its own. It was making sure that like every province was secure and, and same with like his, his work in the group of eight, making sure there's no second class provinces. Yeah. He did a lot of great work to, well, what's interesting is that he didn't see Albertans as Albertans. He saw Albertans as Canadians and he wanted to emphasize that because I mean, during the later time time of his premiership, he had to deal with groups like the Western Canada concept. Which and I think the interesting thing about Lockheed's view of Albertans as Canadians, I think is like often forgotten by a lot of his supporters nowadays. The thing about Lockheed is that his legacy, to some extent, has kind of been hijacked by a lot of different people, for better or worse. I mean, I think all of them, I think everybody, for the most part, would agree that he is the greatest premier, but everyone's reasons for why are obviously a little bit different. Yeah. And I think that part of the problem is that when people, like, there, I think there's just, like, a, it's easy to skew his fight against the federal government as being a fight for Alberta, but in reality, he was fighting for the rights of provinces to be able to secure their own financial futures and not have the federal government meddle in provincial thing and things that are best left to, like, a provincial government. So, like, I think that I just see, like, all of this kind of, tri- like, tribalism in a sense of, like, Alberta, like, being picked on by the federal government. People are kind of taking up the flag of Peter Lougheed, and I'm like, that's great, but, like, also understand how he actually felt yeah. about Albertans as, like, and Canada, as, and, the, and the Dominion itself, like, Canada itself. Absolutely. I think that it's just easy to forget that. Yeah. <laughs> do, do, do you want to hear what Jason Kenney had to say about him in 99? No, but, like, yeah, because... Uh... For people who don't know, Jason Kenney is the leader of a n- new party that basically hijacked the progressive conservatives and united with the wild rose party to form one conservative party called the United conservative party, (laughs) which is, I would call it social credit (laughs) 2.0. We don't like Jason Kenney. He said, quote, Klein realized Alberta could no longer afford the neo Stalinist make work projects of the Lockheed and Getty years. And he set about to distance himself from them. Yeah. For, like, context on that quote, Ralph Klein is also widely regarded as one of the best premiers Alberta ever had. But that's definitely a lot more, like, argumentative. Like, you can definitely argue that he wasn't because it depends on who he was good for. Klein? I mean, Ralph Klein He wasn't did. great. No. He wasn't terrible. He was competent. He was Ish. kind of an asshole. Definitely an asshole. Definitely a drunk. Definitely a neocon. Like, I think that, unfortunately, people look back on Ralph Klein with very rose-colored glasses, but in, like, a less good way than people look back on Peter Lougheed. I think when people look back on Lougheed's legacy, they can legitimately say that he was a good premier without really having to have rose-colored glasses. I'm sure that there's a few things that you do. But with Ralph Klein, the economy definitely boomed under Ralph Klein, but part of the issue is that not all of that was under his control. Um, Something that, I guess, actually, an important point is that the legacy of Alberta premiers, especially since Lougheed, have really been dictated in large part due to just, like, economic cir- like circumstances outside of their control. Yeah. Like, your legacy is ultimately, and, like, how good you are as a premier are ultimately, like, determined by oil prices and things that you can't control. You can impact, maybe, in how you deal with them, but you really can't set the price of oil or anything like that. So, like, Klein benefited from oil booms. A lot of people did not benefit under Ralph Klein because Ralph Klein was a neoconservative, which essentially means he cut everything. All those, a lot of those social 
programs that Lockheed got going and things like that, like the make work projects, quote unquote, that Kenny is talking about are projects to help people work. <laughs> remember all the people to some of our listeners. Do you guys remember when all the hospitals were being blown up in the early 2000s? That's because of Klein. Yeah. I mean, again, I don't think Klein was, I don't think a, he was a, bad a bad premier. He was not as great as people um, say. Ralph Klein was a populist premier in the sense of like current populism, although like less hate, like evil. He, did, he definitely had, <laughs> I definitely would not say that Klein had insidious intentions or anything like that. I, I think he did mean well, but he was a populist in the sense of like how we think of current populism. He wasn't really a well-educated person. He was the guy that everyone wants to have a beer with. And like, honestly, most people in Alberta can tell a story of actually literally having a beer with Ralph Klein. Like my parents can either when he was mayor of Calgary or when he was premier, he was definitely a populist premier and still is. And that comes with the negative connotations of like, he definitely benefited from, I don't know how to word this well, but like populism in the negative sense of ill-advised policies and scapegoating and, and you know, like all of the kind of negative things of like, I would definitely not say that he's the same kind of populist that someone like Donald Trump is, but he was definitely a little bit more, like, in that vein of populism, although definitely not turned up to 11, like, like Trump. But definitely in more of that vein than the populism that I talked about with Peter Lougheed, where he was populist in, like, the positive sense, where he was literally, like, just popular with people. Yeah. Klein was, but definitely, like, there was a lot of really insidious crap that, that happened. A lot of stuff was, was cut, and a lot of people did suffer under Klein. Well, the, the province generally benefited in terms of, like, wealth, but it didn't benefit in lots of yeah. other ways. It's funny because, like, you got Lougheed and then his successor, Don Getty, who, in my opinion, is probably one of Alberta's most <coughs> mediocre. mediocre premier. I mean, there's a joke that the only thing Don Getty did for Alberta was Family Day. Yeah. And then you have Klein. And, and Stelmach, who is basically the Getty too. Yeah, I would no, I would say Stelmach, and and I to- totally believe this is Stelmach was the is the worst premier of my lifetime. Yeah, I don't like. I think I he was really, useless. Honestly, not much. Like no offense to his family or anything I think like that. that. Stelmach is possibly like Stelmach really is the Don Getty <laughs> of like like he is he is to Ralph Klein what Don Getty was to Peter Lougheed in a okay. sense. Like it was. Hugely anticlimactic, and a few rocky things happened, although I would argue probably more rocky things happened under Stelmach, but a large part of that was, at the, I believe, at the time when Stelmach became premier, the oil tanked. <laughs> so, like, this is what I mean about the legacy of Alberta politicians generally being, like, very much tied to oil prices. And, well, it was also... I mean, there's other things, There's but, that thing where, like, what really pisses me off about that is he had a surplus of yeah. funds, and he didn't fucking do anything with it. No. He didn't really do anything in general, which means he just, he was kind of a sitting duck premier, like he didn't yeah. do anything. And then you have Redford. Who, she did some good things. Yeah, she did some good things. I'm not defending what brought her down. No. And then you have Jim Prentice, who I actually, when he was one of the few conservative M- MPs I respected. I didn't really have an opinion. See, um, I had a lot of respect for Alison Redford because she was the first female pre- premier of Alberta. Of Alberta. Um, and she was a really, she's a really accomplished woman. Well, she was she a definitely just, lawyer for the UN. Yeah, which is why she was at Mandela's funeral, because she worked with him, I believe. Mm-hmm. Like, she definitely did a lot of, and she was, I believe under her government, was a big push in LGBTQ rights. Yeah, she did, she did that thing where she's like, we are, we are progressive. 
conservatives. conservatives. And she actually worked. When I first, the first time I went to Pride in Calgary, she was the, what's, what, what are they called? The, she was the, Party during the parade. The marshal? Yes, she was the parade marshal. And because so I she is the reason, she's a, her government's a big reason why, like, the current policies on, like, gay-straight alliances and things like that exist, I believe. Yeah, which is something that asshole Jason Kenney's trying to dismantle. Yeah. I'm not gonna, you know what, I'm, I'm not gonna stay shy to this, Jason Kenney, since you seem like the kind of guy that listens to everything that he's mentioned in, you're an asshole. You were, you were once my MP, you were a, a shitty fucking MP, I'm gonna tell you right now. I was fortunate enough to not have him as my MP. I had him as my MP and then moved and had Stephen Harper as my MP. <laughs> <laughs> so really had the henchman there. I know, but I mean, I mean, like when you go, I'm not a huge fan of Harper. Sorry, our Alberta listeners. I'm not a huge fan of Harper, but if I, he but certainly, I, I don't think he certainly had not a fan of Harper, but definitely don't think he is nearly like as bad no. as Jason Kenny. I think that I, I think yeah, that I, Harper. I think Harper has far like fewer nefarious intentions. <laughs> Just, Kenny is just every time he opens his goddamn mouth. Like when someone confronted him with what he said about Lockheed, and he's like, "I didn't say that." He's like, "Yeah, you did." It's on honestly record. Kenny. People like Kenny and Trump are just ultimately gaslighting us. Well, the, the Jay, Kenny and I don't want to compare him to, like directly to Trump because he's not the same. No, but the thing is, like the way I describe Kenny is, Kenny is literally the personification of everything I hate in politics. Yeah, that's which is. Accurate. He like Kenny's just a backwards rampaging dinosaur. That's how I see it. Yeah. Because just he's well, so far out of touch with what people want. He wants to isn't focus he isn't on social. Though, because well, something, cause something that I I read. Sorry, that's interesting. He's, he's out of touch with regular people. Yeah, except he's also not because like, I mean, I've lived in a very rural district for a very long time. Well, my whole life, actually. I mean, I've, I've lived elsewhere, but I've always voted in my riding because there was no real point in just changing my address every time. Like, my MPs and MLAs have never really been very socially conservative necessarily, but people in my riding are. I mean, like, people like Jason Kenney are actually very popular amongst people. And something I read that was really interesting, actually, I mean, this isn't really meant to be, obviously, I'm not trying to knock Peter Lougheed, but just a little bit of devil's ad- advocate here. Lougheed benefited from the fact that he had majority governments his entire time, which benefited him because he was a red Tory, because he wasn't leading red Tories. Most of his party and a lot of their base was quite socially conservative, but he had a majority government, so he was able to do what he wanted, essentially, and that benefited him. And, like, if Jason Kenney were to get a majority, it would be the same thing. He might not necessarily, like, represent the people of Alberta, because I do believe the people of Alberta are better than him, but, like... Not even from Alberta. Yeah, I know. He's from Ontario. I actually, like, he, yeah, he represents the other thing I hate most in Canadian politics. This happens mostly in the conser- in the Conservative Party, because Andrew Scheer, the current leader of the Federal Conservative Party, is from Ontario, but represents a riding in Regina. And the thing that pisses me off about that and people like Jason Kenney is that, and actually Stephen Harper is one of them too, because he's not from Alberta either. Yeah, but he grew is up. Is that people he from, at he at least grew up, up here. But people from the East, particularly Ontario, move to places like Alberta and Regina, Simply for the fact that they can run in a riding and pretty much go unopposed and have very little chance of losing because they're running for the right party in that province and they know people will vote for them. And it pisses me off because it means that we're not voting for the best possible candidate. We're voting and we're voting for people who ultimately have no understanding of the place that they're representing. This has been actually been like seriously pointed out 
in the case of Andrew Scheer, like on a number of occasions recently, in particular regarding indigenous rights, because he represents the people of Treaty 4, and he knows fuck all about the people of Treaty 4, and they know nothing about him because he's never talked to them. He's never met with a single band leader, at least I'm pretty sure that's the case, or he's met with, like, one. Who he's, knows? I, I was reading something about it the, um, not very long ago, and he's basically, like, a bunch of band, band leaders. Chiefs in um, Treaty 4 were saying that, like, We've never really talked to Andrew Shear. And the population of Saskatchewan is about to become majority, majority indigenous, so, like, your relationship with... The indigenous <laughs> with indigenous people is kind of kind important. Kind of fucking important. Especially Andrew. because if we're... It's, represent, it's like... It's a representative government, so you're representing the people of your riding. Well, clearly he's fucking not. Well, do you think Jason Kenney has talked to anyone who's not a multimillionaire? No. Yeah. Which is also why he compared, like... Oh, my God. This is my few, like, favorite fucking things about Jason Kenney. Um, I say this with <laughs> much sarcasm. One of my favorite things was he had this big ranty Facebook post about how he understands what it's like to be a refugee because he came from Saskatchewan to oh Alberta God, as a refugee. Yeah. And also that, like, residential schools really weren't that bad and that it's just basically, like, a big conspiracy by the poli- like PC, like, the politically correct police to make them seem like they were awful and that we can't talk about it and blah, blah, blah. And I was just like... <laughs> You're from Saskatchewan. You're not from fucking war zones. Like Also, you left when it was under a conservative government, you idiot. Yeah, like that's the other thing. He's trying to make the NDP out to seem like the worst. Because to, be lib- to be honest, the NDP... No, the Liberals have never really been in power in Saskatchewan. Okay. The NDP... He, when he was saying liberal, he meant in like the small L, like... Oh. In the like negative libtard yeah, way. Yeah. The NDP... I don't think the Liberals have ever held power in Saskatchewan. No idea. I don't know. But anyway, regardless... Uh, Saskatchewan friends, please correct me, I don't know. But regardless, yeah, he's trying to say that the NDP destroyed Saskatchewan, which, to be fair, they, did some, they had some incompetent people running the show a few times. But, like, he left when it was a, cons- a government that he ideologically believed in, so, like... It makes no sense. What the fuck, like Jason my, Kenney? My... My... <laughs> That's just amongst the many beefs I have with Jason Kenney. But. My dislike of <laughs> Jason Kenney is... Is completely mine. So I'm not saying like any of our listeners need to agree with us because no. I mean these are our opinions and yeah. I mean I did I did say in the beginning I'm going to say it again in the first episode I did say no matter where you are on the spectrum if you're closed minded you're not going to have a good time but if you're open minded regardless like who, who yeah. like just I mean, have you, fun you can you disagree honestly, with me if you if want. you honestly believe in the opposite of what we're saying and have a fairly reasonably well well-articulated argument as to why that I'll listen to you, but yeah. you have to be willing to listen to us. We will, yeah, we're li- willing to, like, listen to you. Be, resp- like, it's, like if you, when you guys start talking to each other on posts and whatnot, be respectful not only to us, but most importantly to each other. Yeah. I mean, people disagree. We're trying to spark, like, good arguments and good conversation. When I say argument, I don't mean, like, argument in the sense of yelling and screaming at each other. I mean, like, literally a, a good argument about a topic and about... Yeah. Argument in the philosophical sense. I mean, I'm raising I'm raising my voice a bit about yeah. Kenny because he makes me un. He does make me arm, violent. He does make me violently. He angry. makes me arm wavingly angry because he's like I think he's the worst choice. We live for in a really Alberta. fucked up world. When I would prefer Brian Jean over Jason Kenny. Yeah, me too. Because at least he had class. He had some fucking it's principles. Really bad. I'm gonna just stop the conversation really quickly by saying I really wish we could. I really wish we could uh, resurrect Peter Lougheed and yeah. make him leader again. Something super interesting. Yeah, Sorry. what did you learn? What did you learn this week? 
Well, okay, I didn't actually learn me. I can't. This isn't actually what I learned this week. Fine. But like something uh, in this article about the social credit party and the PCs and kind of the author was essentially debunking a lot of reasons people give for why the social credit, the social creds lost power. There was something brought up in this article about like and and you you mentioned it when you said Lahid had no idea uh, or had didn't he he was obviously gunning to win but he didn't expect to win no but nobody did um, polling information information essentially suggested that the Socrates would win because the Socrates always won and that made me think a lot about a couple of elections and actually elections in Alberta in general at least in the last decade because the election in twenty twenty but yeah, when it was mostly a showdown between the PCs and the Weldrose, everyone was starting to expect the Weldrose to win. Like, they were pulling really heavily, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the Redford Conservatives were, like, laid a smackdown on the Weldrose. That wasn't entirely out of nowhere because Daniel Smith was an incompetent leader of the party. Uh, he didn't have control over the party, basically. Yeah, I actually don't think she's an incompetent person or anything. I just think that um, she, she handled a couple of scandals really, really poorly. Um, but secondly, actually, the most, like, I think the best comparison actually is uh, Rachel Notley's win and the NDP win in Alberta in 2015 because uh, nobody saw that coming. I had to pull my car over while listening to yeah. CBC. I was, I was so watching shocked. election results and I was like, what's even happening? Like I, I wasn't, it's, and, and not in a way of like disappointment or anything. I just literally couldn't comprehend the fact that 44 years of conservative rule were over and I wasn't to like... To an NDP To government. an NDP government, no less. Like... It, it would be different. It wouldn't have been nearly as surprising if 44 years of PC rule ended for, like, another conservative party or even, like, a more centrist party. But, like, to go the complete opposite direction was, like, the fuck just happened? <laughs> but it just, like, the, the, like, the comparisons between those two events actually were, like, really, they really, like, actually are very, like, they stuck with me because I'm, like, that's actually really similar. Which maybe is good, bodes well for, for Notley. Maybe she'll be the next Lougheed, but... <laughs> I think she has a lot of potential. I'm going to just state it right here. I res- really respect Notley, and I believe that she's the best person, like the best choice to lead the province right now. I mean, I do have respect for Mendel and Khan. Yeah. But I'm my I'm going to be supporting yeah. Notley. I, I would, yeah, me too, I think. I mean, my only real beef with, with Notley's government really isn't mostly with her. It's with some of her cabinet members. I agree. I think she needs a way better cabinet next door. She needs to definitely shuffle the cabinet a little bit. um, There were some really stupid choices, and there's definitely been there. All she really needs to do is put people, like, she could probably keep most people on her cabinet, but just put put them them in in positions positions that they can actually do. More likely to succeed in. Yeah, I would agree. And there's, there was a few things that her government definitely did wrong and mishandled, but I, I would argue, I mean, every government does, so it's not like it's a novel. You're not going to please everyone. Well, you like, never not can. everyone was pleased with Lockheed, but Here we you are. did a great job. Here we are. Anyways, what did you learn this week? <laughs> uh, totally unrelated to the topic, but that's okay. I found out that London, England, has more airports than any other city in the world. They have six. They have Heathrow. They have Gatwick. Uh, Gatwick. Uh, South End, City, and then two more. <laughs> I'm guessing they're like a mix of regional and obviously of regional international airports. Well, oh, Manchester I mean, has a Manchester. Ha- oh, sorry, London. Well, kind of. No, mean, sorry, that, I, sorry, that, that, that gets I got, kind of like I got confused of, between. Um, no, there is a Manchester London airport, but it's like 80 miles from. No, I got confused about. I somehow started equating this with the UK in general, not just London. Okay, no, the the London has the most airports than any other city, and it's kind of caused problems because. 
where Heathrow is. Airspace. Yeah, well, <laughs> also where Heathrow is, they want to. There's that huge controversy because they're expanding a new. They're building a new <coughs> runway, yeah. and I think they have to demolish like a bunch of buildings or some shit or a pond. I don't know, but it's been like so contentious because they're like, I mean, Heathrow's just not built in a good place and like most this guy go check out this guy his name's jay foreman he has this series on youtube called unfinished london and he's also a comedian so it's fucking hilarious he talks about all the airports in london he has two episodes on that (laughs) and i was just watching that before we did this so yeah that is just really interesting because it's like just how much problem heathrow has been and the whole airport thing has been so yeah, that's what I learned this week, and now you know about that and Peter Lockheed. I hope we did him justice. I hope so too. I really hope so because I'm a nervous biographies are hard to do. But what is biographies? Biographies are definitely hard to do. So, it's but, like you want to talk about it like chronologically and stuff, but then you're also like, this is kind of weird and boring. I don't really want to do it. Uh, what is I don't I don't want to do it memento style. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Or I mean, Iron Lady style. Obviously, we didn't like talk about a whole lot of other things because we could have gone into detail. I remember absolutely not, but it's been two hours now. It's time. You guys are probably done yeah. listening to us, but I hope you guys enjoyed. Next week, should we announce what we're doing? In next couple, episode. Next episode. Sure. You go ahead because it's yours. Oh yeah. So uh, our next episode. Uh, remember that how I said those bumper stickers saying let them fr- let the eastern bastards freeze in the dark were popping up. That's the title of our next episode, which is related to this. As I mentioned, it's called going to be on Western Canadian separatism, which should not be confused with like just Alberta. The Western Canadian separatist movement was larger than Alberta. We will be talking but, about some of the parties. Yeah, we'll talk about some of the parties and all, a lot of the reasons for why they existed. So, what where it is today, which yeah. is basically gone. So this and, is kind of the next installment in this like little series about Western Canadian yeah. politics and and Canadian politics because we're going to talk about Trudeau um, eventually. I don't know when we're going to get to that just yeah. yet, um, but yeah, that's so going to be a tough one. Probably to yeah. So that's going to be next week or next episode. I don't know why I keep saying that, but next episode uh, we Western Canadian. Actually, we are hoping to make these a lot more weekly. Yeah, definitely. We just have day jobs, so it's a little yeah. hard. Uh, <laughs> if you haven't already, please go check out the Patreon. Uh, we're gonna probably be starting to post stuff on there. Yeah, I've got wanna, a couple. I've got a paper that I want to post up there that you guys can read. If you uh, want to hear us more often, definitely supporting the Patreon helps. Yeah. That. Brian's getting a bit lonely on there because he's literally been our only patron for Thanks, a month. Thanks, buddy. He immediately went and signed up for five dollars, so we're making five dollars a month. Uh, thanks, Brian. Rich. Thanks, buddy. I'll see you on PUBG later. Uh, <laughs> uh, please go check out the Patreon. Please comment on Facebook. Let us know how we're doing. Give us feedback. Tell your friends. Also, for the new listeners on our Alberta, welcome. And thank you so much for your feedback on there. And I believe, do you have anything else you'd like to say? No, I think we're good. Okay. Awesome. Thank you guys so much. This is uh, Jonah signing off. And Lindsay. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.